Welcome to Impact Drivers, a podcast about how entrepreneurs can build businesses that create a better world. I'm your host, Jen Helms. Welcome to the show. Solar energy can be a big part of our climate solution, but adoption has unfortunately been slow. Our guest today is Jeffrey Char, co-founder and chairman of Trendy, a company that is working to accelerate solar adoption in Japan by making it more affordable and convenient. He is also the co-founder and CEO of Sogo Energy, a company working to get the 1 billion people in Asia that currently experience energy poverty access to solar energy. Jeff Char was previously the Director of Corporate Venture Capital and a member of the Innovation Task Force at Tokyo Electric Power Company. He's also a professor teaching about entrepreneurship at multiple business schools and has previously founded, built, and sold several successful ventures. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining the Impact Drivers podcast today. Hi. It's my pleasure to be here. Great. Well, you are the founder of two different companies. I would love to start by talking about Trenday. Can you tell us a little bit about Trenday and what drove you to start the company? Sure. Um, yeah, I was basically unhappy with the Japanese government's energy policy. Um, back in 2011, we had the nuclear crisis, uh, the meltdown in Fukushima. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, um, you know, the Japanese um, energy industry basically uh, had turned off all the nuclear uh, reactors, and that was mm-hmm. about a third of our power. And so uh, that was made up primarily by um, burning more fossil fuel. And um, I, mm-hmm. I wasn't happy with that policy. And so um, I, I thought, how can we move away from uh, nuclear and fossil fuel and move faster towards uh, renewable energy in order to save uh, the climate. Yeah. So, so that led you to, to start this company. And um, is there anything else you could share as far as background for the energy landscape in sure. Japan? Yeah. So um, there are typically, I mean, or historically, there were 10 regional monopolies in Japan that were all vertically integrated. So they handled everything from power generation to transmission and distribution, and then uh, ultimately to retail sales. And, you know, back back in 2011, when we had the, the nuclear crisis, um, we had about 55 reactors, and they were generating roughly a quarter to a third of the power um, for the country. And that went to zero after the, uh, after the nuclear accident. Right. So fossil fuel really was ramped up. Um, we, we had you know, the, we implemented energy efficiency programs, which were very effective in lowering the total demand curve. Um, but the, the gap was still made up by uh, burning more fossil fuel. And, um, you know, that fossil fuel basically went up to about 88% of the total uh, generation um, in 2013. So like two years after the, the accident. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and so the other th- trend that was kind of happening behind the scenes was uh, one of deregulation. So uh, we had deregulated the generation uh, market. So you had a lot of uh, independent power producers come into the market. Um, And this was prior to the the nuclear accident. 
But um, in 2016, so after the accident, um, the government deregulated the retail sales uh, of energy. And so we went from the 10 incumbents to, depending on what area you're in Japan, uh, you know, like in Tokyo, where we are, more than 500 um, retailers came into the market. Oh, um, wow. So, yeah, it's, it went from literally from 10 um, captive kind of the incumbents to everybody. Um, so 500 plus, actually, I think it's over 600 now. Um, so, so that really changed, um, you know, that shook up the market. And um, now you have a lot of competition uh, at the retail side. The power grid itself, though, is still regulated. So you have deregulation on the generation side and on the retail side, but everything in between is, is still heavily regulated. Yeah. So is the grid uh, operated then by a company or is that government or? It's, it's operated by the 10 incumbents, the, oh, okay. the historical incumbents. Um, and so we actually have two different schemes in Japan. Um, you know, half the grid. So we have divided by east and west. And, and so half the grid is at 50 hertz and the other half is at 60 hertz just mm -hmm. because of historical, you know, one side bought equipment from the Germans and the other side bought equipment from the Americans. And uh, years later, we're still stuck with this legacy. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So, so that gives us a little background. And now your business model, can you ex explain what services you've launched with Trenday and, and how you're set up as a company? Sure. So I guess maybe if I could just go backwards, um, what we're actually aiming to do is, you know, as, as renewable energy comes onto the grid um, and more and more, mm -hmm. um, there's, there's an advantage to moving to a different architecture. So the grid in, in most or in all developed countries has really been kind of evolved over time and, and hasn't really changed since it was introduced yeah. way back when. Um, and it's, it's centrally managed um, and vertically integrated. The thing is with, with renewables, um, you know, the renewables are really like, I guess in telecom, uh, the traditional utilities would be like mainframe computers and renewables are more like cell phones. So the topology of the internet has changed over time you know, back in the old days, it was just a bunch of mainframe computers at universities and research centers connected. And now if you, if you look at all the nodes on the internet, uh, the vast majority are going to be cell phones, right? Smartphones. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's really going to be the sim similar, I think, in energy where the traditional utilities, are, you know, running a, a large thermal uh, power plant is like the mainframe and all the solar and, you know, wind and micro hydro and whatnot is, is uh, biomass. These are all more distributed in nature and more like the cell phones that are attaching to the internet. So what happens or how do you handle that is, is kind of the conundrum here. If, if you want to increase uh, renewables, this, this issue of having everything distributed uh, is just going to kind of increase um, as time goes by. So uh, when I was at Tokyo Electric, I was, you know, advocating for embracing this trend and actually riding the, the wave of decentralization and, and distributed. And so when I left Startup Trendy, um, the idea was how can we actually and ultimately uh, enable uh, distributed power to be uh, directly delivered to uh, local, you know, as, as locally as possible. So you don't have to, 
you know, we don't have to put everything on the transmission lines. We can right. actually balance a lot more at the edge with uh, more distribution and just better software to manage everything. So we actually were looking at a bunch of startups that were quite interesting um, and had been working on kind of, you know, the integrating blockchain technology with energy. And while these companies had really interesting technology, um, they didn't really understand the energy market itself and, and the necessity to physically balance the, all the electrons. Um, and oftentimes, I think just in terms of a business model, um, they were trying to sell their software to the incumbent utilities. Mm. And frankly, the incumbent utilities don't want to buy it. I mean, they, they would prefer that everything stays the way it is. And they, they, they like the status quo. I mean, they're, they're masters of that. So um, they don't have a, a large incentive to move away from it. Um, so the decision that we made um, at Trendy was when we set up that rather than being a software company that goes out and tries to sell to utilities, uh, let's first become a utility. So we, we have a three-phase plan. Um, phase one, we launched uh, in 2018, and that was, let's just be able to resell energy. So basic utility stuff. You know, buy, we buy power in the marketplace and we resell it to residential customers in Japan. Can we, can we do that capably? Can we you know, build them? Can we get paid? Can we market that? Um, and that launch was, was uh, significant in, in the sense of kind of being the first step forward the second step, which we made in 2019, was offering a product called Hot Denki. And here, what we did is we combined our ability to, um, to buy and sell power with um, a solar PPA. So basically, a solar purchase, power purchase agreement, um, which in layman's terms basically means we go to customers, uh, residential customers again, people that own their own houses that have large roofs, and we say, you know, we know that you're paying, say, $200 a month in uh, for power right now. What about if we gave you a 10% discount off of whatever the incumbent's charging, and you sign a 10-year contract, and we will install solar panels and uh, inverter, and um, we'll just sell you power cheaper for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, we will give you the solar home system, uh, no charge. So you have no, no upfront cost. Guaranteed savings during the 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, you get a free solar system. And, um, you know, obviously the solar system is warranted for 25 years, uh, the, the panels are. So um, you may have to upgrade uh, or replace the inverter. Um, and you may want to drop in batteries later on. But for now, you have solar panels. And um, if for some reason, extreme weather or whatnot, um, the power goes out, uh, at least during the daytime, you've got power. Um, and it's all cheaper and no risk to you. So, so we offered this product. It was quite innovative um, when we, we entered the market. And since then, we've had some other comp companies try to copy us, but uh, we're really focused on this and we've been growing this business. Um, and then just this week, um, we launched our third product, which is kind of part two of this second phase um, of distributed. Basically, uh, it's, it's offering cheaper power, plus solar, plus storage. So we, we charge you a flat rate, flat monthly rate. You sign a 10-year contract. Um, we put panels on your rooftop and um, install a battery at your house. And if the power goes out, you've definitely got power. 
and you know this is this is a, a fixed fee, and so you know what the savings are going to be, um, what the cost is going to be, and how much you'll save. So that's the, the first three products that we've introduced, and it, that checks off our phase one, which was trying to just go to market, and then phase two and phase three. So phase sorry, phase three is still to come, and that's uh, kind of the original dream, which is being able to procure power from a local source and distribute it to a local customer, really kind of P2P sharing of the energy. So by a local source, do you mean a, a, a different customer then or a different homeowner or what? Yeah. So so right now what we've done with, with our three products is um, the first product, the cheaper energy is just for consumers, but the two, two other products, the energy plus solar and energy plus solar plus storage, those are for prosumers, basically, those consumers, typically consumers, have turned into prosumers, right? They are producing and consuming um, mm. at the same time. And so what we're doing is we're seeding the market for um, the future where we could actually take excess power from one prosumer and sell it to a consumer and vice versa. We could we could take power, excess power from somebody's solar panels and they don't have a battery so we can back it up onto their neighbor's EV or the neighbor's home storage system. And then at night, we can draw down on that. And, and by doing all of this locally, we can cut costs, right? You don't have to tie up uh, or you don't have to incur the charges from expensive transmission. Um, and this really is a different mindset. You're, you're using power much more locally um, where you've generated it. And so you've got a smaller footprint and lower costs and actually a, a lot more resilience if there are outages or, or you know, some other kind of uh, tragedy. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, and I, I can't remember the numbers. Um, maybe you have them as far as how much energy is lost in the transmission process. I remember it's, it can be quite a lot. Um, so that, uh, that makes sense. Depends. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, if, especially when you've got longer distances and uh, different climates, it could be anywhere from 10 to 20% um, yeah. in, in general. But um, I think that the physical loss is one thing. The, the bigger issue is, is that transmission is expensive to build and maintain. Right. right? Um, you know, even in a, in a country like Japan, which is much smaller than the States, you know, we still have a fairly long distance to travel uh, because a lot of the power is produced in the countryside. And then you've got to tra- you know, use transmission to get it into the cities. That's not cheap. And um, the other thing is, you know, being a developed country, uh, we have a network uh, of universal coverage, basically. So all houses in Japan are, you know, have power. They're connected to the grid. Um, when you're a young, you know, when you're just rolling this out, you, you would, you're much more aware of the cost of this. Like you stop mm-hmm. thinking about the cost once you have it all rolled out. But that's actually wrong. So, for example, when you roll it out to the countryside, um, it's, it's actually more and more difficult economically for each house that is further away from kind of everybody else. And, and that's because for a small amount of usage, you still have a, a large amount of cost, right? Because the cost of building transmission is going to be the same regardless of, of whether one person's using it or 100 people are using it or 10 million people are using it. And so the further out you go... Electrifying kind of rural areas is very expensive. Um, and Japan right now is faced with a declining population. Um, so we've had kind of 
socioeconomic trends uh, being that, you know, aging of the population. So one in four people is over 65 in Japan, right? We have more than a quarter of our population is over 65, and that's increasing rapidly. Second thing is when, when young people, you know, graduate from school and, and go to the university um, or get a job, they often move to the big city. So you've got massive mm. urbanization. And that means that the rural countryside is, is getting hollowed out, right? Declining population, um, declining tax base, yet, you know, physics still applies here. So if you want to electrify that shrinking town that's far away, um, the cost of the transmission and everything is the same, even though you've got less and less usage. So depreciating or I guess amortizing that cost of that transmission uh, becomes more and more difficult economically. And so what, what's happening is uh, if you had one utility, they would make profits in the city and they would use that to subsidize the losses in the countryside. But when you have deregulation and you know whoever's covering the countryside, that's not a profitable segment. It's a money losing segment. So using a different architecture like distributed energy um, and, and maybe building out mini grids to cover the, the rural areas is probably a better bet. Um, it's just that we've already invested all this money in centralized kind of, you know, national grid. Um, so it's not, we're not ready to bite the bullet on that transition yet. So I think that'll happen over time though, just, you know, because of economics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. It, that makes me think though, I mean, is anybody then willing to serve those rural areas in the meantime or? Well, by, they, they have to. So the, yeah. um, the 10 incumbents in terms of the grid, they own and operate the, the grid and, you know, they, they have a responsibility to do so. Um, right. okay. It's the retailers though. So the, the cost of energy though, is going to be, you know, it's competitive. And so I think the people living in the countryside are going to start to see uh, they're not they're not yet charged a different price but i think as time goes by they may be charged a higher price right that's what i was wondering okay which would be very unpopular politically i can imagine so so yeah the um there's some companies in the united states as well that have power purchase agreements but it seems like your your model is set up in such a way and maybe it's just how the economics work in japan you're agreement timeline of 10 years is really short. <laughs> I think a lot of the agreements here are oh, more like 20 years. So I'd love to hear more about, you know, how, how that works and what, what's different sure. as far as you know. Yeah. The, the reason it's 10 um, is, is because uh, we're taking advantage of the, the feed-in tariff here in Japan. So I'm not a big fan of the feed-in tariff, but since it exists, we, we take advantage of it. So <clears throat> In the case of utility scale solar, for example, that's 20 years. Um, and so that's, a, you know, that's, if you look at total capacity, that's the biggest share. My company focuses on residential customers. So the feed in tariff for um, a residential solar system is going to be 10 years. And the way we're doing this, um, the way we're able to offer a customer free solar uh, is because during that 10 year period, whatever power they're using, we're charging them a flat rate for. So it's, it's a, for example, 21 yen per kilowatt hour. And that, that'll vary depending on the region. But um, the way we kind of operate economically is that the solar system on their rooftop generates power during the day, obviously. It doesn't work at night. So 
to make things easy for the customer, they just have a flat rate, regardless mm. of what time of day it is. Um, but the economics on our side are such that when they're buying power from their, you know, during the daytime, the power is coming straight off the panel. And um, that means that we're able to avoid the transmission fee for that power because it doesn't touch the wires. Oh, and again, transmission is a huge ch charge. It's in Japan, it's about nine yen per kilowatt hour. That's regardless of whether you're moving it um, one meter next door or you're moving it 100 kilometers or a thousand kilometers. It's the same price. Um, and so we don't want to touch the wire. And, and so whatever power that the customer is using on premise during the daytime that's coming straight off the panel is cheaper for us to deliver because we can avoid that transmission charge. Mm -hmm. The second part is that during the day, you know, most likely um, they're generating more power than they actually consume themselves, right? So, you know, my, my wife may be home in the daytime watching TV, maybe running the washing machine or the, the dishwasher, but, you know, overall, she doesn't use all the power that the panels are producing. And so because during that 10-year period, my company Trendy owns that equipment, um, any power, excess power that's generated during that time, we can sell under the feed-in tariff. Um, and so those two revenue streams actually generate our income that then allows us to cover the cost of the, the system. But that's, that's why it's 10 years. It's to match that 10-year period where we are eligible for the feed-in tariff. And by then, we have recovered the cost of the equipment. Just a reminder, I mean, the, the reason why we set up Trendy was to accelerate the adoption of renewables in Japan. And so if, if we can do this in a 10-year span, I'm happy to do it in 10 years. If we could do it faster, I would also be happy to, to turn it over to the customer faster. Yeah. We're not, uh, you know, we're not planning to be a large IPP that, that owns and operates all these assets. This is merely a kind of a means to an end. Okay. And then, so, so you've been working on building Trenday and you've been working on it for a couple of years, and then you decided to start a second company. That one company isn't enough work. <laughs> um, so can you talk about yeah. this Sogo Energy and what you're working to solve with that company? Yeah, so um, Sogo is really born uh, because we recognize that um, even though developed economies and emerging economies are very different. Um, we recognize that the whole, you know, opportunity that was presented by renewable energy uh, was really kind of would shine in the case of distributed and in terms of rural electrification. So, you know, it's, it's great to, to be, you know, to see this growing in Japan, but um, we realized that actually we could take the latest technology, all of this distributed energy technology and the uh, renewables, and we could apply it in rural Asia, where uh, in many cases, they still are waiting for electrification. And so we went out and we were, we were researching Africa and Asia, um, and we realized that there's, there's more than a billion people in Asia who are suffering from what we can call energy poverty. Um, and for these people, you know, electricity is basically expensive, it's unreliable, it's dirty, and many times it's just not available. Um, and so we, we went out and we kind of researched this and, um, we found that, uh, you know, there, there are already 16,000 mini grids, uh, in Asia that are typically run by local entrepreneurs and they're using diesel generators, which are very dirty. And, uh, the diesel fuel is very expensive. 
Um, but these local operators, you know, they, they lack the, the CapEx or the funding to upgrade and they, they don't have the technical expertise to do so either. So um, we thought, okay, how can we take what we know and um, help fix this situation? And that was kind of the genesis for Sogo. Great. So can you expand on what the business model is then? Sure. Um, so with with Sogo, um, again, I should preface this by saying that we're still super early on this. Um, okay. and, and a lot of what I'll say here is what we plan to do rather than what we have done mm. uh, because we're still just getting started. Um, so our plan is to take an equity stake in each of these local mini grid op- operators. Um, and, and the way we do that is not by saying, you know, what percent do we need to get at the company, but it's, it's rather by saying, how much money do they need in order to upgrade their existing mini grid? So if you want to upgrade an existing diesel mini grid uh, to turn it into kind of a hybrid solar diesel mini grid, um, you know, what's it going to cost? We do that calculation and then we negotiate with the uh, entrepreneur to invest into their company that same amount, uh, we take an equity stake in them for it. And then we use that money to help actually turn around and upgrade their infrastructure. So we'll, we'll add smart meters, controllers, inverters, you know, solar panels, and basically put all of their customers onto our IT platform. And, um, and then we use the profits from the operation now to, to scale up over time and, and kind of increase the size of the mini grid. Um, and then just, I guess, rinse and repeat in other regions. And so that's, that's our fundamental business model. Okay. And you mentioned the Sogo software that you're developing. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about your technology and why it's an important part of your business? Yeah. It's, so it's, it's, it doesn't exist yet. Oh, okay. um, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's really the same as what we did with Trendy. So with Trendy in phase one, um, you know, we, in order to get to market quickly, we basically rented a third party system um, Mm -hmm. to do all of the billing and and whatnot and, you know, kind of utility in a box. And we rented that and it was a terrible system, but, but by using it, we're, you know, we were able to get to market faster. And then we learned kind of what they did well and what they kind of didn't do so well, shall we say. Um, And then we turned around and built our own system. Um, so that's the same plan here for Sogo. Um, we don't think that there is an existing system that can handle this today. Um, and so what we'll do initially is we'll just hack together the different hardware and software pieces that are already out there and you know, kind of duct tape everything together as a prototype. And that's what we're doing right now this year in Cambodia. Um, once we've done that, then we will go out and talk to customers uh, further and and then turn around and build a system that can handle all that much more elegantly, um, and that's what we'll be using to scale up. So this yeah, so the system doesn't yet exist, and and we still have to build this. But um, rather than us just kind of sitting down and thinking, oh, let's throw this in or throw that in, I think the the way we are planning to do it is much more pragmatic and kind of see what works first and what doesn't work. And then we build it based on that. Right. See what works with what's already out there, but kind of a hodgepodge of, of what's already out there, a collection of what's already out there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, because for example, when we put in smart meters, they're going to toss off all kind of data that currently the 
you know, these, these rural mini grids don't have any of that data because they're not using smart meters. Um, so they, they might know how much power they're generating, but they don't know how it's being used downstream. Um, they don't know, you know, how much power each homeowner is using or, or um, you know, if, if there's theft of the power on the lines or any of that, just, they have no visibility into it. Um, they don't know about, you know, the, the balancing of their, their mini grid. Um, they're, they're really doing it kind of blindly and it's really inaccurate. So these are all areas that we can improve on and, and fix um, once we've got these uh, smart meters out in the field and we've uh, you know built our system. So that's a real improvement over what's currently out there. And um, that's, I think, the missing piece. Okay. And then, so it sounds like things are still pretty early on. You're still working on an early first project. Can you talk a little bit about how you chose, it sounds like Cambodia is the main initial target market you're working with. Is there others and and how did you choose them? Yeah, Cambodia is just our first market just because of, um, I guess, connections. Mm. Um, so I, I go there frequently and um, you know, I, I, I teach uh, at the business school in Phnom Penh. And, and so yeah, I had a network there already. Um, it's actually not the most attractive market uh, in terms of commercial commercialization. Um, and that's because the government uh, has done a pretty good job of electrifying the country. They, they've got you know, grid extensions out to about 90% of the country. So the vast majority of the country is already covered by the grid. Um, and there's probably a, about a thousand villages which are still off grid. And of those, the government's got plans to extend the grid to about 800 of those villages. So that only leaves 200. And these are definitely not the low hang fruit. These are, these are villages which are way out in, you know, the countryside, uh, maybe, you know, next to a river or maybe even in kind of an, I don't know what you call it, uh, you know, small islands in the middle of the river. Um, oh, wow. And, and so these are really difficult places to electrify and also small populations with very little consumption of electricity and therefore building, you know, the, all the infrastructure and the transmission to, to get the power out to these villages just doesn't work economically. Uh, so these are the ones where we will probably, um, you know, test our, our system kind of because it's the, the most challenging uh, physically to, to build the system there and to operate it. Um, however, from a business viewpoint, it's, it's a terrible place to start because the, you know, you don't have economies of scale. There is no way to gain economies of scale. Um, and, uh, you have very small consumption. So you have all this work, but very little to show for it, but that's where we will start because that's the best way to test out our technical, you know, the technology and in, in our system, um, in terms of scaling, um, the business we're looking to scale in, in other countries, um, where there is a bigger opportunity, where there's a higher percentage of the population still off grid. Um, and that would be countries, you know, like Indonesia or the Philippines. Uh, Myanmar would be a great place to, to start. And actually that was the next one on my list, except for they just had a, a coup. And so we're, we're taking a wait and see at it, you know, approach on that for now. Um, and uh, hopefully things there will 
improve and stabilize. But until then, uh, that's off limits. Yeah, a billion people. I still am a little shocked by that that number you said earlier for energy poverty. Yeah, if if you look at if you look at just the number of people who have no access to electricity, it's it's more like two hundred something million. Mm. But if you look at um, a lot of times, the governments have claimed um, electrification um, of a larger part of the population, um, and they justify it by saying, "Well, the you know the wire runs to the house." But in reality, if power is not flowing through that wire, and if the house is not actually connected, it's hard to say that they're you know that they have access to energy because in many cases the the power is just not reliable. It's, uh, it'll run a couple of you know, it'll run for two or three hours in the day, but it doesn't run the rest of the day and you don't know when it's going to run. And and so we think that if you include those into the definition of, you know, energy poverty, then uh, it's over a billion people in, in Asia. Yeah. And that makes sense that you'd include that. I mean, not knowing when you'd have energy and yeah. having it for that short of a time, that's pretty extreme. Yep. It's not reliable and, and, yeah. and it's expensive. So we can do a lot better if we um, deploy kind of distributed technology like like mini grids it's it's really like cell phones in a sense you know and when when cell phones were became very popular in the states you know everybody got one but then when they the price came down um, and we took them to developing countries um, they leapfrogged the telephone system right i mean if you're in cambodia or whatnot why would you want to spend money building out the fixed line telephone system when Everybody's just going to skip it and go to cellular. So, so that's really what we saw across Asia and Africa. And so, it, I think it's the same thing with energy. Distributed is just better than the traditional way that we've done it. And so, leapfrogging it and putting it in from the get go is it just makes more sense. Yeah, it, it does seem like a pretty expensive initial thing to get going, though. Are you finding that that's going to be a big hurdle as well, or? Well, that's why we're targeting um, as a starting point. Uh, that we target diesel mini grids. So if, if we target the existing diesel mini grids, number one, we know that people have a demand for the power. They're already paying for it, and and typically because it's diesel, they're they're high cost. Right. So it it means that that's kind of the low hanging fruit for us. That's easier to pick off, and we can leverage what they've already done. As we drive the cost down, then we can scale it up, um, and you know the the marginal cost of of extending the diesel mini grid footprint, let's say another 500 meters in any direction is, is much smaller than if you're trying to just build it from scratch. Right. Yeah. And then I'd love to hear from you just in general, you have a lot of experience starting businesses. So go energy and trend are your most recent businesses. But before that, I know you've started others. Is there anything that you can share as far as your biggest learnings or your biggest lessons you like to share about building companies? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> big question. <laughs> yeah, big question. Um, I, I would say first and foremost, that startups are hard and risky. And um, I guess what I've learned over the last 25 years of starting and building companies is that it's best to focus on problems, especially problems that really bother me personally. Mm. Um, and, you know, just because it's so hard that, that if it's not something that you really want to keep doing, uh, it's just too easy to stop, right. And, and give up. So, 
um, I, I think my, my number one takeaway is to focus on problems that really bother me and then to recruit other people who are also passionate about solving that same problem. Um, and that's really, I guess, the fundamentals of, of what I do. Yeah, that makes sense. Gives you the foundation for everything ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I, all the times when I had kind of started a company with a clever business idea, they usually failed. Mm. Um, and and I think all the times where I started it just because it's something that really bothered me and pissed me off. And I just felt like this shouldn't be this way. And, and I'm going to do something about it. Um, those are the ones that tended to succeed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, so what's next for both companies? What what challenges and opportunities do you see on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, for for Trendy, um, you know, we've we've gained initial traction and we're scaling up. So I guess more scaling uh, is is first and foremost. Um, we're looking to take the company public in the future, uh, maybe the next two or three years, um, and then hopefully once the regulations change in Japan. Uh, we'll actually be able to roll out phase three where we can do peer-to-peer trading of energy. Um, So that's kind of the dream for Trendy. Um, For Sogo, it's to complete this initial technical pilot that we're working on in Cambodia to build out that platform and then, uh, you know, our IT platform uh, and then ultimately commercial launch. Um, And so, you know, we'll we'll see. (laughs) We'll see how far we can get on that. Yeah, well, it's really exciting, and I look forward to following your progress. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Impact Drivers. This episode is the last episode of Season 1. Impact Drivers will be back with more episodes in September. In the meantime, check out any Season 1 episodes you might have missed. Have any feedback or suggestions for Season 2? Feel free to email me at jen at impactdrivers.io.